We ever have one of those mornings? I think we're having one. There we go. We're having one. Uh, Laura and I came in this morning, and the first thing we discovered when we got to the church was that somebody had broken into a couple of the church vans, had broken out some windows, and uh, we don't know all of the damage that was done there, and then discovered they had gotten into the church and, and went through the, the tech uh, booth and, and uh, helped themselves, I think, to an iPad, and, uh, and, then, and then downstairs, um, there was in the one of the kids' closet um, had played with a fire extinguisher, and so that whole thing had in a supply closet. And but they were nice; they did it in there and not in the children's ministry area, so we're able to have children's church. And uh, and then and then our projectors out, and then whoever heard of candles that don't light? I mean, <laughs> and so it's one of those mornings, and I was sitting there thinking about that, and I thought, oh, how perfect is that? Because it was into those kind of days. It was into the darkness and the mess and the yucky stuff of life that God sent his son Jesus. And so we get to celebrate that today and nothing can take that away from us. And, you know, projectors will break and candles won't light, I, I guess. And, and stuff like that will happen. But in the midst of that, we have Jesus to hold on to. And so this is a good day. And I'm excited for what God has to do for us today. Yeah. So we can celebrate that. Um, so I think it deserves a joke. Um, I, I read that sometimes I like to share funny stories that I read, and I read one this last week, and I thought, I'm going to share it with you. I'll tell you up front, it has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to talk with you about this morning, but this morning's going all over the place anyway, and so I might as well throw this in, but I read a story about this little boy who last year he had writ, uh, written a letter to Santa and it didn't go, go so well. He didn't get all the things that he wanted. So this year, he decided that he was going to go over Santa's head and write a letter to God. And so he sat down at the table, and he began to write, Dear God, I've been a good boy all year. And then all of a sudden, it hit him. God knows when you're lying. And so he crossed that out, and he said, Dear God, I've been a good boy for the last month. Thought about that a little bit more, crossed it out and says, I've been a good boy for the last week. Then he remembered yesterday the interaction with his sister. And so he crossed that out, put his pencil down, went into the nativity set, grabbed the figurine of Mary, wrapped it in some cloth, tucked it in his top dresser drawer, came back, sat down, and wrote these words. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mom again. <laughs> so, Yeah. Absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but I thought that was funny. Uh, we're, we're in the third week of our Advent series that we are calling Christmas uh, Through Their Eyes, the way that I see it. And uh, again, we've been, been taking these weeks leading up to Christmas and just looking at that story of Jesus' birth, the advent of Jesus, over and over and over again. Um, from different perspectives, through the eyes of some of the eyewitnesses who were there, and this morning, we're going to look at Christmas or the advent of Jesus through the eyes of the shepherds. And just like we've done for the past couple of weeks, what I want to do is just like we did with Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, um, I, just, I just want to this morning take a few minutes to kind of get to know the shepherds a little bit better. Uh, what do we know about them? What do we know about their lives? Who were they? And, uh, and, I, and then I want to give you just uh, three quick takeaways from their story that I think are applicable to us today in our lives. And so uh, what do we know about the shepherds? Let's begin there. 
Uh, the truth is that when it comes to the shepherds individually, we don't know a whole lot. We, we really don't. Um, in fact, a couple of the important things that we don't know about them is we don't know any of their names. Luke doesn't give us their names. And we don't even know how many of them there were. The only thing that we know is that there was more than one because Luke uses the plural, that there were shepherds. And so uh, we don't know. There may have been two. There may have been 20. We don't know how many that there were. And so the truth is we really don't know a lot about them individually. However, there are some very important things that we know generally about shepherds that I think come into play as it pertains to this story. The first thing that we know is that the life of a shepherd was a very difficult life. By nature, uh, shepherds were nomadic. Their entire life revolved around their sheep and getting their sheep to new pastures, taking them to new places where there was food for them to eat. And, and so for the shepherd, when it comes to home, home was wherever the sheep were. Home was whatever field they could find, where there were green pastures. And so they, they lived among the sheep 24-7. Their whole life revolved around taking care of the sheep, protecting the sheep. So they ate with the sheep. They slept in the midst of the sheep. Their life was wherever the sheep was. We also know that in ancient Jewish culture that shepherds would have been considered social outcasts. They were, in fact, one of the, the lowest class of people socially. In the eyes of the ancient Jews, the only people that would have been considered a lower class than shepherds were lepers. Not leopards, not the cats, but lepers, you know, leprosy, those who have leprosy. And, and so, um, you know, the Lepers were down here. Lepers were the ones who, whenever they came in contact with people, they're walking down the street, they had to shout out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, basically stay away from me. You don't want to have anything to do with me. And so lepers are here. Shepherds are just barely above them. I was reading this past week that, that shepherds were so looked down upon, uh, not only as low class, but they were also looked, on, uh, looked upon as being very dishonest for, for some reason. That, that whenever there was a theft of any kind, the first place that a finger would be pointed was to the nearest shepherd. That surely they must have been the one who did it because they're dishonest. Those guys can't be trusted. Uh, in fact, the thought that shepherds were untrustworthy went so far in that in the Jewish law, if you were a shepherd, then you would not be allowed to testify in court. That your testimony would not be valid because, again... Uh, the word of a shepherd is not trustworthy. And so as you can imagine, the, the shepherd's life was a lonely life. It was, uh, you know, in fact, the only real friendships that a shepherd would have would be with another shepherd. And, and, and we also know that not only were they social outcasts, but they were also religious outcasts, which is very interesting. Because the shepherds actually played a key role in the religious system. In fact, if it weren't for these shepherds, nobody else would be able to practice their faith because they were the ones who provided the sheep for the sacrifice. And, and, and so even though these shepherds played a key role in the religious system, still they tended to be shunned by the religious community. 
And the reason why was because in order to provide the sheep for the sacrificial system, they were always out with the sheep, taking care of the sheep, protecting the sheep, which prevented them from participating in things like religious festivals and, and uh, uh, the feasts and the sacred holy days and all of those kinds of things. So the religious folks would look at the shepherds and say, you know, they're unclean. They're, they're just not good church folks because they don't show up for the church things. And, and they're, they're really not worthy of a relationship with God because of that. And, and so I find it interesting that it was to these uneducated, lonely, social and religious outcasts that God chooses these guys to be the very first ones to hear the news that the Savior of the world has been born. I want you to think about this. You know, think about birth announcements. Those of you who are parents... When you first discovered, you know, that you're going to have that, that baby, who are the first people that you tell? People closest to you, right? Moms, dads, uh, aunts, uncles, uh, you know, sisters, all that kind of thing. Of course, nowadays, the way that we do birth announcements is we blow something up on Facebook, right? That's what we do. And we blow something up, and hopefully nobody gets hurt. And if it's blue, it's a boy. If it's, if it's pink, it's a girl. But, but typically, even in that uh, situation, we, we let the people who are close to us kind of be the ones who are there with us to find out in person and, and first and foremost. Well, I was thinking about that this past week and thought about, you know, years and years and years ago when... Uh, Laura and I first found out that we were going to have a baby. The first people that we called, of course, were our parents. The first people that we notified were our parents because, because that's what you do. Whenever there's big news, whether it's good news or bad news, the first people we go to are the ones who we feel the closest to. And so isn't it interesting that given all of the people that God could have showed up to, that he could have sent this announcement to, to announce the most important news that the world has ever heard from that point, up to that point or since, that the Savior of the world is finally here, that God, rather than choosing kings in palaces or priests in temples, instead he chooses a group of outcasts to carry that message. Apparently, when God looked at these shepherds, he saw them differently than everybody else saw them, which is actually the first takeaway from this story that I want to leave you with this morning. Again, there, there are three that I want to leave you with, but the number one takeaway is this, is that when God looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees us differently than everybody else sees us. Man, aren't you glad for that? God sees people different than we see people. For, for these shepherds, everybody else, when they looked at them, all they saw was, you know, dirty, smelly, uneducated, no influence, no political power, nothing special about them at all. But when God looked at them, he was like, man, these are the perfect ones. These are the ones that I'm going to choose to carry the news, this good news. Which, by the way, if you know anything about God, then you know that that tends to be the way that God typically works, right? He tends to pick those who the rest of us would not pick. In fact, God has a long history of doing that. I mean, think about it. 
Clear back in the Old Testament, when God was looking for a king, he, he picks the very last guy that everybody else would choose. In fact, Samuel, when he's looking for the king, he goes through everybody else and picks them first until God is finally like, no, my choice is David, who interestingly was also a shepherd. When God chooses someone to be the father of his people, again, Abraham probably didn't make the top of everybody else's list. He wouldn't be the top of ours. I mean, who's going to choose a guy uh, who's 90 years old to be the father of a nation, never had a child before, unable to bear children, and yet God says, Abraham's my God. Over and over and over again, this is how God works. He, he chooses a peasant rather than a princess to be the mother of the Messiah. He chooses a bunch of rough and tumble fishermen that, to be his first disciples. He chooses a hothead with a big mouth who's always blowing it to be the first leader of the church. He, and then to top it all off, God actually chooses a murderer and a persecutor of the church not only to become the greatest missionary the world's ever seen, but also to be the one who is responsible for giving us over half of our New Testament. Come on, I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad that when God looks at us, he sees so much more than everybody else sees. When we look at people, all we see is the exterior. We, 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 see, we see the faults, we see the failures, we see the warts, we see the bruises, we see the scars, we see the consequences of poor choices. We see the limitations of education and personality. But when God looks at people, what he sees is always so much more than that. What he sees is his creation. But what he sees is somebody who is fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. What he sees is he sees beauty and he sees potential and he sees the destiny of what a person can be when they're fully and completely committed to him. And so I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but I know somebody does. You need to understand that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your faults and your failures are, your hurts and your scars. What you need to understand is that God not only can, but he wants, he desires, he longs to do something miraculous in and through you. That is good preaching. That's good news. Each and every one of us were created for an incredible purpose. And regardless of the limitations that everybody else wants to put on you, you need to understand this. With God, there are no such things as limits. God can do what nobody else can do. What is impossible for us, or, uh, impossible for us is possible for him. And I'm just convinced that one of the things that God absolutely loves to do is to blow the world away in, in, in who and how he chooses to work through different individuals. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he writes these words to the church in Corinth. He says, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. In other words, the things that when everybody else looks at it and goes, that's absolutely nothing. That person is nothing. God chose them to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. I love verse 27. In fact, verse 27 is like, like my life verse, you know, that God chose the foolish things. I read that, and I'm like, man, I read, that's me. That, that, that's, my, that's my story. I mean, sometimes I sit back, and I'm like, God, out of all of the people that you could have called and chosen to be a pastor, out of all of the people you could have chosen to lead a church, to lead this church, there are so many that are more qualified than me, better preachers than me, better leaders, more creative, more talented. Could I just wait and make sure we didn't get an amen on that? <laughs> but it's true. And yet God chose me. I, I, I think the one thing that I have in my favor is that I know that if God doesn't show up, and if God doesn't do what only God can do, then, then man, I'm going to fail. <laughs> I'm going to blow it. Guess what? I've come to believe that that's all God needs. That that's, that's really all God is looking for is the only thing that it takes. If you want to know what does it take to really be used by God, this is it. The only thing it takes to be used by God is simply a yielded life. A life that says, God, I'm yours. And you can do with me whatever you want. And if you, if you want to do something great, then you're going to have to do it, but I'm in. And that's all it takes. Takeaway number two. This is a big one. All it takes is one genuine encounter with Jesus to change your life forever. That's all it takes. One encounter with Jesus will totally transform your life. In verse 20, it tells us that the shepherds, after, after being at this, at this stable, after encountering the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world, it says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which are just or were just as they had been told. I don't want you to miss this. I want you to catch this. On this first Christmas morning, these guys, again, we don't know how many of them there were, but these guys walked into this lowly little stable. And when they walked in, they walked in as dirty, lonely, social outcasts. But when they left, they left transformed. When they left, they left not as lonely, dirty, social outcasts. Instead, we're told that they left as praising, glorifying evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do that. Encounters with God transform our lives. Encounters with a living God always result in life transformation. And again, this is a story that we see repeated over and over and over and over again through the pages of Scripture. It's almost like God is trying to help us understand, I want you to understand this. 
And so I'm going to tell it to you again and again and again through the lives of different individuals. I mean, for instance, you you think about the life of of Jacob in the Old Testament. Here's Jacob. He's out in the wilderness in, in the middle of Bethel. And he's on the run from his uncle Laban after swindling him out of a bunch of sheep. And and, and Jacob, up to this point, I mean, he's been the kind of guy where, man, I'm going to grab what I can grab. I'm going to get what I can get by any means possible. If it means deceiving somebody else, then so be it, as long as I get mine. And then all of a sudden, here he is in the middle of this desert, and he has this one encounter with God through a dream, and it totally transforms his life forever to the point that he, he changes his name. God changes his name from Jacob, which means schemer or swindler or deceiver, trying to grab what you can grab by any means, changes his name to Israel, which means the prince of God. And he becomes the father of a nation. The same thing is true for Moses. Moses is out in the desert again. It seems like deserts. Lots of things happen in deserts. But Moses is, sometimes God's got to take us into a desert to get our attention, into the dry places, into the barren places, into where there's nothing there that can can capture our attention. That's just a bonus. I didn't even put that in there. But but, but Jacob, or Moses, he's out in the middle of the desert. He's, He's fleeing or has fled after murdering an Egyptian. And then one day he has this encounter with God, and of all things, a bush that's on fire that won't burn up. Apparently, bushes light easier than candles. God just said, amen. And so he has this encounter with God, and this one encounter changes Moses. It transforms him from a, a, a stuttering, backcountry, again, shepherd, he's watching sheep, murderer, person who's on the run, only concerned about himself, into a bold leader and a deliverer of a nation. You jump into the New Testament, and you see this again over and over, Peter, James, and John. One day, after a, a, a getting skunked fishing, they, they have this encounter with Jesus, and this one encounter transforms them from simple fishermen into the, the, the first leaders of a movement that winds up changing the entire world. In, in fact, later, after the resurrection, they're in front of, of the, the political leaders, and one of the observations that's made of them is like, there's nothing special about these guys. They are unschooled, ordinary men. Oh, but then it says, but they perceived that these guys had been with Jesus. See, even even people who didn't know Jesus recognized that an encounter with Jesus totally transformed these guys' lives. Probably the greatest example of this is a guy by the name of Saul. Saul is known for being a persecutor of the church. And, And his life's mission was to put a stop to this movement called Christianity, this new movement. And and he was determined to do that no matter what it takes. I mean, throwing people in prison, taking their lives, whatever it took, he wanted to stop this movement. He was committed to it. And then one day, on the way to do that, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. And this one single 
encounter totally turns his life upside down. In just a moment, Saul is transformed and he becomes Paul. He, he's transformed from this fire um, um, breathing persecutor of the church into this fire igniting evangelist of the church who winds up carrying the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. And all, all down through history, this has been the case. Just one genuine encounter with God can forever transform the course of a person's life. St. Augustine encountered God one day through a voice that said, take and read. Prompted him to pick up the Bible and read Romans 13, and it was that one encounter with God through his word that transformed Augustine from a doubting skeptic into the one, one of the world's greatest theologians. A guy by the name of D.L. Moody has an encounter with God, and of all places, in the storeroom of a shoe store. He was a, a poor, uneducated shoe salesman. But he has this encounter with God that changes him and transforms his life from, from this poor, uneducated shoe salesman into one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. Moody winds up traveling all throughout the United States and all throughout England, and tens and thousands of people come to know Jesus because of the ministry of D.L. Moody. Some of you are probably familiar with the name Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is, is widely known as one of, probably the, one of the world's greatest Christian apologists, but he certainly wasn't always that. Most of Strobel's life, he lived as a self-described antagonistic atheist. He, he's brilliant. Uh, he, he graduated from Yale with a law degree, and so, you know, usually wherever he went, he was always the smartest guy in the room, and you know how sometimes those guys can be the smartest guys in the room? They're, sometimes they can be obnoxious, and, and, and Strobel was kind of like that, especially when it came to Christians, because what he loved to do more than anything else is to use his intellect and his ability to argue to just dismantle Christians' faith. And then one day... His wife became a Christian, <laughs> and it, it, it turned his life upside down. It actually launched him on a personal journey to systematically, he just decided, you know what, this has invaded my home, and I'm going to systematically disprove this false belief that has infected my own home. At the time, he was working as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and, and so he used those investigative skills to, to just begin this quest to disprove once and for all this false belief that Jesus was the Son of God. The only problem is that in the process, the opposite thing happened. That, that he had this encounter with the living Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and it totally transformed his life. And so now it transformed him in such a way that rather than attempting to disprove Christianity, Strobel now has written tons of books and he travels all over the world systematically laying out why he now believes that Jesus really is who he said he is. He really is the resurrected Son of God and how this relationship with the Son of God can totally transform your life. You see, this is what genuine God encounters do. They transform you. 
And I think that one of the reasons that the shepherds are such a key part of this story is because God chose them to be the first to experience what the Apostle Paul later wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When he says, therefore, if anyone, anyone means anyone, no qualifiers, don't have to be a certain status, don't have to have a certain education, there's, there's no qualifiers. He says, if anyone is in Christ, guess what? He's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We call that transformation. Last one. The natural response to a genuine encounter with Jesus should always result in sharing that with other people. Genuine encounters that lead to life transformation always result in sharing it with other people. I want you to look at verse 17. It says that after seeing him, after seeing Jesus, after having this encounter with Jesus, the shepherds did what? That was a question. You can answer that out loud. They would, they, what does it say? They did what? They told everybody. They, they went and they told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. Again, as you read through the, the pages of Scripture, this seems to be always the natural result of a God encounter and a transformed life. Whenever anybody encounters Jesus and he does something to transform their lives, it, it's, like, it's like they just can't help it. They, they can't contain it. they got to tell somebody. I mean, look at, look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're told about this guy named Andrew who has this encounter with Jesus. And suddenly he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. This one that they've been waiting for so long. The Son of God. And I want you to look at what Andrew immediately does. It says in, in verse 41, it says, The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And then he did what? And then he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. A couple of verses later, the same thing happens with Philip. Philip, Philip has this encounter with Jesus. And I want you to look at verse 45. It says, immediately Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that, that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And of course, Nathaniel makes this famous statement. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And what does Philip say? He says, come and see. Come check it out. You've you got to check this out. You've you got to discover what I've discovered. Over and over and over again, we see the same pattern repeated. This is what people who have encounters with Jesus do. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when he has this encounter with Jesus, he, what's he do? The first thing he does is he hosts a lunch and he invites all of his friends over because he wants them to meet this Jesus who he has just met. Probably, probably the best example of this is, is the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, we're told this story about it's in the middle of the day and it's, it's hot. And so Jesus goes to this well to get something to drink. And, and there's this woman who is also there. And, and Jesus asks her, you know, if she'll draw some water and give him a drink. And, and she looks at Jesus and she's like, man, do you not? I'm a Samaritan and, and you're a Jew. 
And we all know Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Jews don't like Samaritans. Samaritans don't like Jews. And so why in the world are you talking to me? And Jesus responds to her. He says, you know, you think you know something about me. But if you really knew what was most important, if you really knew who I was, then rather than me asking you for a drink, you'd ask me for one. Because I have water. That when you drink of this, it's the water of life. And when you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And Jesus goes on, he's like, and I know that's what you long for. I know that you've been so thirsty. You've been thirsting for love all of your life. And you've looked for it in relationship after relationship after relationship. And the bottom line is no other relationship will ever, ever fill the hole in your heart than the relationship you can have with me. And this woman stands there with her mouth wide open. And she's like, how in the world do you know all this stuff about me? But this encounter that she has with Jesus, where he offers her living water, it has such a deep, transforming impact on her life. Guess what she does? She runs into town, and she tells everybody who will listen to her, hey, you got to come with me, and you got to meet this guy who told me everything that I've ever done. Come, come on, you got to meet him. Best thing that's ever happened in my life. See, this is what transformed people do. When you genuinely encounter Jesus, when Jesus genuinely touches your life, the natural response is to share that with other people. And, and, and why not? I mean, the truth is, we're naturally wired to do that. But whenever we experience something good, our natural response is what? Find somebody else and tell them about it. Find somebody else and share it with them, right? I mean, I mean, you get a new car. What's the first thing you want to do? Go take somebody for a ride in it. You get a new house. What's the first thing you want to do? Invite somebody over and have them see it. You want them to share in this blessing. You go to a new restaurant and it's awesome. What's the first thing that you do? You certainly don't keep it a secret. I know you don't. I'm friends with you. I see your posts on Facebook. You post pictures of burritos. <laughs> and, and so the, what we want to do is we want to share that with other people. I, Pastor Justin, I was talking to him the other day, and we had that snow that took place uh, Friday night. And he said that Saturday morning, Ezra woke up, and the first thing he wanted to do was call his friend and let him know that it snowed. And, 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 and Justin asked him why, and he said, because I love snow, and I want to share it with my best friend. See, that's what we do. I was thinking back to when I was a kid. I was talking to, to mom and dad about this, actually, last night. But when I was a, a kid, we lived in Kearney at the time. And one, one year for Christmas, my mom and dad bought me, like, this um, full-size uh, vintage pinball machine. And they got that for me for Christmas, and I was talking to them about it, and nobody could remember where they got it or anything like that, but I just, Dad totally redid this whole thing, and Mom, they, they rewired it and, and painted it, and the, the thing was a really cool old machine. And I think that year, Christmas was on a Sunday, and so I remember the first thing I did after church, we lived across the parking lot from the church, first thing I did is all of my buddies were over at the house playing pinball with me. Why? 
because I had received this awesome gift. And I just couldn't help. I wanted to share it with other people. That's what we do. Whenever we experience something awesome. And so the question for us this morning is, if we do that with houses and cars and burritos and pinball machines, things that in the end will never, ever change anybody's lives, shouldn't we all the more be sharing the life-transforming truth of Jesus Christ with the people around us? Do we do that? Is that something we do? If not, why not? I was reading this past week, and there are several studies that have been done surrounding the question as to why Christians are reluctant to share their faith with other people. And anybody want to guess what the number one, by far, the number one reason why people don't share? I don't know why I ever ask questions, because I'm deaf and I can't hear. Fear is the number one reason. Fear is the number one reason why people don't share their faith with other people. You know, I'm afraid what people are going to think of me. I'm afraid of how they'll react. I'm afraid that maybe I'll lose my friendship with that person. Let, 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 let me just say two things about fear. The first one is this. Anything we're not used to doing is scary when we do it the first few times. I mean, when I first received a call to preach, the first few times that I got up to preach, nearly peed my pants, scared to death. Scary. Hadn't done it before. Any, anything that we do for the first time, it's always scary. But here's the deal. The more that we do it, the more comfortable we get with it. The same is true, you know, when I think about the first time I ever hit a golf ball. I really started golfing really when we moved here with Chris Cole, probably six years ago. And the first time I got up and hit a golf ball in front of people, I was scared to death. Scared to death I was going to miss it. Scared to death I was going to embarrass myself. Scared to death of what they all were going to think of me. And, and, and you, know, you know, what if I embarrass myself? I did, by the way. And then I discovered that even though I didn't hit the ball well, the world didn't end, and the sun still came up, and they still liked me, and we still had a great time. And, and, and now, you know, I've been playing golf for six years, and the truth is, anybody that's played with me, you know this, I'm still not very good at it, but I don't care. I, I'm not scared anymore. It's fun. And, and so the more that we do things, the less scary it is. But, but I also, I also want to say this about fear and just put a little bit different twist on it, especially when it comes to sharing your faith. If we um, really believe what we say we believe as Christians, if we, if we really believe it, then, then I think absolutely fear ought to play a key role in sharing Jesus with people that we love. 
not to keep us from sharing Jesus because we're afraid of what we might think, but instead, we ought to be terrified of the consequences for those individuals if we don't care enough to share. That ought to keep us awake at night. That, that ought to, that ought to terror, if we really believe what we say we believe. I mean, as Christians, you know, we believe that the only way to experience life in all of its fullness is through a late relationship with Jesus, right? We believe that, right? Good, a few of us do. That's good. We, we believe that the only way to receive eternal life is through a relationship with Jesus. Eternal life comes through a relationship with Jesus. We believe that, right? And in the end, we believe that the unrepentant, those who have never opened their lives to, to the will of Jesus, will eternally be separated from Jesus. Do we believe that? As Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, that is what we believe. And so the fear of the people who we love, our family, our friends, our co-workers, spending eternity separated from Jesus ought to drive us to the point we lay down our selfishness. Because that's really what, that's really what this centers around is I'm afraid what they might think of me. I'm afraid of the consequences for me. Instead of thinking I'm afraid of the consequences for them. And so it ought to drive us to stop being selfish and to set aside our own personal level of comfort and do whatever it takes to make sure that they know, that, or at least that they have the opportunity to embrace or reject Jesus. The question is, do we really believe that a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in the world? Do we really believe that? Or is it just one of the many important things? C.S. Lewis, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, who, by the way, is another individual who, who his life was totally transformed by an encounter with Jesus. He, he was educated at Oxford. He was a committed atheist, and his world totally was turned upside down by Jesus. And he's best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. But C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. And so the truth is that if we really believe that, that Christianity is true, that if Jesus really is who he says he is, and that our only hope is in him, and if we really love other people, how can we allow something as simple as fear to keep us from sharing something that just might save their life? This past week, I, uh, I stumbled across this video podcast by uh, Penn Gillette. That, that name sounds familiar. He's uh, part of the famous magic duo, Penn and Teller. And uh, one of the things that Penn is known for, other than being an incredible magician, is um, he's, he's very anti-religious. 
Um, in fact, he's a self-proclaimed atheist. But I stumbled across this video, and he was telling this story about how one night after one of his shows, the, this guy came up to talk to him, and the guy it was very complimentary of, of Penn and about the magic show. And, and, um, and it, in fact, let's just, let's just watch this. We'll pick it up there. Watch this with me. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. A little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. I mean, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. When I first saw that, I couldn't get away from that one statement that if we really believe all that we say we believe is true if we believe it enough that we're willing to gather every week and we believe it enough that we're willing to give a significant amount of our financial resources and we believe it enough that we're willing to completely reorder our lives around the person of Jesus Christ if we really believe to that extent, then how much do we have to hate other people? 
not to share it with them. Now, I know that's pretty harsh. And those are, are his words, not my words. And I know you guys are probably wondering, does the video end, it was a long video and tried to debate how much to show, but does the video end with this encounter totally transformed Penn's life and he became a follower of Jesus? He goes on to say, no. <laughs> that he says, I, you know, religion has done a lot of harm. And it has. <laughs> and he said, I, I don't believe that there is a God. But what I do know is that was a good man who really cared about me enough to tell me what he believed in. And, and, and it, it's harsh to say that we hate people that you know, we don't share Jesus with. And, and, and I, I don't think, honestly, I'm willing to go to that place of, of saying that. But I will ask this question. Do we care enough about the people around us? To share the best thing that's ever happened to us? Or maybe the better question is, do we really believe that Jesus is the best thing? All of us would shake our head, yeah, yeah. But do we live that way? Do, do we live that way to where, you know, we'll, we'll share burritos and pinball machines and houses and cars and music and all kinds of other stuff. But if Jesus really is the best thing and we believe that, are we willing to share that? Because the truth is this, that people who really do believe that, people who have experienced personally the transforming work of Jesus Christ in their own lives personally, there's something about it. they just can't help but talk about it. There's a story in the New Testament where some of the disciples are arrested for telling people about Jesus. And, and so they're whipped and they're scolded and they're told, we're going to let you go, but whatever you do, don't tell, other don't tell anybody else about Jesus. And their response is, we just can't help it. But we just can't help it because we've experienced it and he's transformed our lives and it's made such a difference in our own lives personally that, that all we want to do is just share that with other people. People who really have been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ in their own lives personally, they just can't help but talk about it. Not in an obnoxious way or a Bible-thumping way. But, but in an honest, just part of the daily routine of life, just like we talk about other things that are important to us. This, this is how Jesus has impacted my life personally. This is why a relationship with, with him is so important to me personally. Just, just like Andrew and Philip and Zacchaeus and the woman at the well, you see, people who have encountered Jesus in their lives are always going to be like, man, you got to come and see. <laughs> you you got to come and see. you got to check this out. I just love it if you'd come to church with me sometime. I know that you'd, you'd like it. So the question for us this morning is, do we care enough about the people around us to do that? And, and here's the deal. We've, we've tried to make this as simple as possible. And we live in a day and age where there is not an easier time and way to do this. Now, now I'm going to say this. There is nothing that will ever 
beat a personal invitation. Nothing ever beats, man, hey, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I go to Connecting Point Church, and I love it. Um, it's really made a difference in my life, and I love you. And, I, you know, if you're, if you're open, I'd love to have you come with me sometime. It's that easy. Nothing beats that. Studies, studies have shown that if we would just do that, 70% of the people we'd ask would say yes. But, but we've, we've even made it easier than that. We live in a day of an age of social media, and Pastor Brian mentioned this earlier, but one of the reasons we've been trying to post more on our, our social media page is that, you know, we're, I'm not tech savvy at all, but, but one of the things that I kind of understand a little bit is that the more that we do things like that, the more that you share the posts that Connecting Point puts out, the more that you like the post, the more that you comment on it, there's an algorithm in Facebook that more people see it. Not, not just your friends, but your friends' friends. And you ever wonder why all of this stuff shows up on my, on my page, on my Facebook wall? And that's why. And so, you know, if you don't do anything else, how hard is it to like a post? How hard is it? We've been, we've been posting little clips of these sermons. How hard is it to share that? Just say, hey, take a minute. Watch this. It's, it's worth your time. Just do that. If this really matters to us, we take this seriously. And so this morning, you know, as the band is here and helping us, what I want to do this morning is this. Is first of all, remind you to do that and remind you that our Christmas Eve service is on Christmas Eve of all times. What a great time to have it. Good planning there. We're smart like that. 5.30 to 6.30. And this is a time of year when people are a little bit more open. It's just going to be a song mostly of singing Christmas songs, and I'm, I'm not going to get up here and talk like I did this morning, just spend a few minutes. That's a great opportunity to invite somebody. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and um, you've never made that decision to invite Jesus into your life, I just believe that today's your day. Broken screens, can't stop it. Broken vans, can't deter it. Candles that won't light. Maybe we got those candles like the birthday ones that they, no, they, they won't blow out. That's the opposite. So We just believe that's why you're here. And there's no better time to invite him into your life than right now. And maybe you're like, man, I've made so many mistakes, I've blown it, i made a mess of my life. If you really knew me, if you really knew all that I've done, listen, my response to that is, if you really knew me, if you knew all the things that I've done, all the mistakes that I've made, you'd be like, that dude has no business being a pastor. Thankfully, when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see us like everybody else does sees beyond our worst mistakes and he sees the person he created us to be and so this morning I believe he wants to make you into what he created you to be because that's what Jesus does he's still in the business of transforming lives and so if that's you and you want to receive Jesus into your life this morning it's really as simple as this bow your heads and just pray this Jesus I need you I need you I'm open to you 
and whatever it is that you want to do in me, if you'll have me, warts and all, then you can have me. Forgive me of my sins. Transform my life. Make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, guess what? The old has passed away, and behold, everything has been made new. New creation, new name written down in heaven. And if you prayed that prayer, we want to rejoice with you. If you're online and you did that, please let Amy know. Or you can go to that central hub that, that Brian talked about earlier and you can shoot us a little email or you can let us know, hey, I made that decision today. And if God, I'll tell you what, if God is doing anything in your life, if he spoke to you this morning, one of the cool things in this series is, especially the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of people uh, contact me personally and just, this is what God is doing in me this is how he's been working. This is what he spoke to me. And as a pastor, there is nothing more encouraging than that. And so do that, man. We want to celebrate with you and what God's doing. And there's a level of accountability in that too. So we encourage you to do that. We believe with all of our hearts that God loves you and he is for you and he can do what you cannot do on your own. And so he's worth celebrating. Let's do that. Stand with us this morning and Band, help us as we wrap things up.